the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. Since 1886, the Statue of Liberty has greeted millions who came to this country seeking better opportunity, even physical safety. Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, reads the welcome on the statue. With each passing week, government policies have made that welcome more remote. In this week's episode of Challenge 2.0, we examine the issue of refugee camps and the connection to the internment camps of World War II. Well, we have three guests who have a wealth of experience with the issues we're going to be talking about, and we're very fortunate that each of them have agreed to join us today. Uh, first, I'd like to introduce Tom Aketa from Densho, uh, Maru Mora Villapando from La Resistance, and Terry Kylo from the Tracy Levine Center, the executive director of that, and which I also serve on the board, and I'm thankful to each of you for joining us on this very important topic. Maru, if I could, I'd like to begin with you. You're very familiar with this whole issue of the refugee and immigration crisis. If you would, bring us up to date a little bit on your personal experience with this. Well, I've uh, been an undocumented immigrant for over 20 years here in, in the Seattle area. Um, I've seen how in the past decades, uh, the immigration system has hardened and making it really difficult for people like me to adjust the status. What uh, we have seen in the past two years is um, the usage of every single tool at their disposal of the current regime. Um, they have uh, been very clear that they don't want any of us to adjust status or uh, for those that are coming into the country to actually even attempt to come in. Um, and not only that, but the privatization and the uh, profit that the immigration detention uh, has been used for in the past uh, 15 years has also increased. So an example is um, Louisiana uh, in 2017 had only two detention centers. Today in 2019 they have 17 detention centers. Um, just in April when the uh, Congress approved $4.6 billion for Congress, uh, for, for Homeland Security to quote-unquote better conditions for children at the border, uh, that money ended up being used for expansion of detention. We have now 55,000 people across the nation being detained. This is the, the, the historical horrible moment for our communities. So this is something that we saw coming, but we didn't uh, expect it to be so fast, so huge. Um, and it was clear to us in 2016 when uh, Trump was uh, on campaign and launched his campaign against us Mexicans uh, and he pretty much just launched a, a war against immigrants. Those that are here and those that are coming in, but very specifically this is a white supremacist war against immigrants of color. Mm -hmm. So that's been very clear for us as immigrants and those that are attempting to, to come and seek, seek refuge here in the United States. You've been very active uh, in particular with the Northwest Detention Center, and I understand that's had a few name changes, uh, which I'd be curious to hear about. But share a little bit about your work there and some of the 
personal stories of people that you've encountered that are in detention. So we started our work there by doing a blockade and uh, shutdown action back in 2014 because mm -hmm. we wanted to bring uh, the then known as Norwest Detention Center uh, to the map, right? We wanted people in Washington State to know that we couldn't call ourselves progressives and have one of the largest detention centers in the West Coast. Um, that led to a hunger strike, the largest so far in a hunger in a detention center. Twelve hundred people went on hunger strike back back in March of 2014. And um, what we continue doing is supporting those inside the detention center. So uh, I mean, we have so many stories just um, before. Uh, this week, during this week, we got a call from a person saying, again, they found live maggots in the food. Uh, this has been a constant since March. Almost every day people uh, don't eat, and they don't eat because nobody's going to eat this kind of food. I mean, this, there's always been a complaint about food there. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also a business. You know, People have to end up buying from the commissary. Uh, so they don't eat the food. Um, but the fact that when people call us, usually they call us to talk about somebody else. You know, people do care about their, their cases, of course. They want to be free. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, for example, back in 2017, we had a series of hunger strikes. Uh, we had, I don't know, like over a dozen of hunger strikes in 2017. And um, I remember a specific case of uh, this, this young man from El Salvador uh, that was trying to protect another uh, teenager that had just been uh, detained. And um, among them and another guy from Mexico, they were organizing hunger strikes. Mm -hmm. And um, ICE um, located them as the organizers, quote unquote. And so they um, translated the, they, um, I'm sorry, they um, transferred them to other places in the nation. Mm -hmm. So they started moving them around, you know, like uh, they went to Alabama, they went to Arizona. They end up in Oregon. Finally, they came here. And throughout that time of juggling people around and putting them in, in solitary confinement, uh, this specific guy from El Salvador, uh, all together during that uh, transferring, he was in, in solitary confinement eight months. And one of those times when he landed in Arizona, he called me and he says, I don't know where am I. I, I know I'm in Arizona. I don't know the name of the detention center. Mm -hmm but this is the worst place I've ever been. And he was in prison for 14 years prior. And he explained to me, this, the cell is really small, the bed is bolted to the floor, mm -hmm. there's no toilet, there's a hole in the floor, and it's dark, I can't see. And then he asked me, how, how, how are the other ones? And then he started crying and he said, tell them I love them and I mm -hmm. care for them and everything is gonna be okay. When we've been looking at the various news stories, and of course just a fraction actually gets on video or broadcast or on social media, but as you've looked at the various images, the various stories that have come out over the last months or year or two, which one really tugs at your heart? Which one really stands out and disturbs you? And Tom, I might begin with you on that. The, the one that actually gets me angry, the one that really kind of... Uh, it provokes me it are are now these images, and we're seeing them more and more, of the press or politicians walking through these guided tours mm -hmm. and being shown, oh, it's not so bad. Look, you know, these people are happy. They're getting good food. I mean, that exactly happened to Japanese Americans. I mean, when when Japanese Americans were incarcerated during World War II, mm -hmm. uh, they had people go through and they made movies. So look, look how happy they are. Mm -hmm. And they don't show the, the distress, the, the turmoil 
the suffering that's happening. And so what makes me mad is so Americans, you know, we watch this and say, oh, right. it, it's not bad. Or, or we're arguing about, oh, maybe they should get a little bit better food. And they don't really get the full picture. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, the fact that we're being lied to, that's what really disturbs me. And, and we're seeing it more and more. Terry, how about you? And then Mara will come back. Well, I'm also overwhelmed, honestly, uh, by, by by the photos and by the pictures of, of, of people under kind of space blankets, knowing that they're cold, that they have no soap, that they have no toothpaste, that they, they have to share one toilet in the middle of everywhere with everyone with no, no privacy, where the lights are on all the time, which is all about a form of torture. But I'll tell you, the moment that I broke down and cried was when I saw a, one of the moments I broke down and cried was when I saw a lawyer for the United States government standing in front of a judge and arguing that soap and toothpaste were not necessarily part of humane treatment. Sure. I mean, and, and that goes against everything that, that I've been taught as a person of faith mm -hmm. and against what I was taught as a white person, what America was all about. And now we have a, a lawyer arguing on behalf of the government that soap and toothpaste are not necessarily a part of humane treatment. Laurel, how about you? Of course, the images you see at Northwest Detention Center, whatever it's called right now. But what about beyond that, what we've seen taking place on our southern borders? Well, as a matter of fact, I was in El Paso in February. Um, uh, there's been several hunger strikes there, and we have been down there supporting the local organizing. Mm -hmm. um, so when I landed in El Paso, I hadn't been there in many, many years. And this is the closest I gotten to Mexico in 26 years, I think. Um, and so when I landed, the first thing I felt was this militarized town. Mm -hmm. it, made, it made me shook because then I realized that the organizing there, it's more difficult, more challenging. Mm -hmm. uh, and it became ground zero for everything we're seeing. So I actually got a tour of three different detention centers in the area. Um, and I wanted to get closer, but I couldn't because there was a border patrol around. So I mm -hmm. could have been stopped and probably detained. Uh, so I didn't. But just um, hearing the, the, the person describing the situation, we actually got close to Tornillo where the children were. Mm -hmm. And I could, again, I couldn't see, but just thinking about it and, you know, I'm a mom, I, right. I have a child. She's 22 now, but she's just always- Just graduated from college. Just right? graduated, yes, uh, really, really proud. But, um, you know, that's why I started doing this work because I felt I'm one of so many that have children that we don't have a status. And if we get deported, what's gonna happen to our children, right? And so uh, as, she, as this person was describing Tornillo, and then it, it reminded me of this uh, audio that was played in media about this child crying, mm -hmm. you know, and just thinking about my child. Um, it, was so, it was a very difficult moment because, um, you know, I see this every day in so many different ways and forms with different communities. And the fact that I couldn't see them, but I could actually very well tell what's happening, mm -hmm. it, it was a very difficult moment for me. We've seen how the number of detention centers have expanded. And earlier this summer, the administration announced their intent to reopen Fort Sill in Oklahoma as a detention center. And that held particular significance for you, Tom. Can you explain why and what your experience was there? Well, one, I, you know, my grandparents and parents were, were placed in concentration camps during World War II. Um, not at Fort Sill, but nine years ago, um, I interviewed a, a gentleman in uh, Hawaii, mm -hmm. and he was in his uh, early 80s. And you know, he told me this, this horrendous story about what happened to his father at Fort Sill. 
that uh, his father was this business leader in, in Kona, mm -hmm. Hawaii. And he um, was picked up by the FBI and sent to Fort Seal because he was a community leader. He actually was helping Japanese families uh, because he was bilingual, just interpret things you know, uh, so that they can get their forms done. And because of that, um, uh, he was put on some list and he was um, picked up and brought to Fort Sill. And you know, this father of 11 children, a, a business leader in Kona, when he was at Fort Sill, he, he, he mentally snapped. I mean, it was so much pressure for him to be at this place, uh, you know, this community leader, that he, he tried to uh, climb the fence. And, and as he was climbing the fence, he said, you know, I, I, I need to go home. I need to go home to my family. And the other you know, inmates were saying, oh, you know, come back. And, and, and they're yelling at the guards, you know, don't shoot. You know, he's, he's just, you know, he's, he's mentally snapped. But he kept climbing. And, um, and as, you know, the son told me the story, he said, and so one of the guards just went up to, to the, his father right behind him and just shot him in the back of the head. And, you know, he, he wasn't a threat. He wasn't doing anything. But it was such a powerful story to me to, one, see this 80-year-old man go back to being this, this like, 11-year-old uh, kid mm -hmm. and talking about how he found out how they took him out of school and how devastating that was to the family. And this was, what, 75 years later, and, and he's still very affected. But, but Fort Sill, just knowing the types of things that happen, the things that we don't see, mm -hmm. that we don't hear about, it was really important for me as a Japanese American to go to Oklahoma and to tell that story, mm -hmm. to let people know these are the things that happen behind, behind these, these fences. Now we have a little bit of video and we're going to go to that very briefly right now to show just a few of the images down there. And on Saturday, Japanese-American activists and survivors of U.S. internment camps engaged in civil disobedience outside Fort Sill Army Post in Oklahoma, where the Trump administration plans to indefinitely detain 1,400 immigrant and refugee children starting next month. Fort Sill was used as an internment camp for Japanese-Americans in 1942. This is Michael Ishii, who helped organize Saturday's protest. I am here, a descendant to support my elders who have come to bear witness and to raise their collective voices in opposition to mass detention. Tom, as you described, you felt called to go down to Fort Sill. Tell us about that and of the continuum of other experiences that occurred down there. So there were uh, you know, 15 Japanese Americans from around the country, you know, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York. And we all congregated at Fort Sill, and we wanted to, in particular, just you know, make a statement about what was happening, you know, as and, and we had with us six um, Japanese Americans who were children um, mm -hmm. uh, during World War II and placed in, in concentration camps, and so in particular, we wanted their story to be told, and so we had a, a press conference um, in front of the military base, and there's this you know grassy field in front of the sign, so we thought that would be a good place. And so there were 15 of us, and uh, the press was there, and we're explaining why we were there, you know, why, what happened to our community, and in particular, the six of them, what happened to them as individuals. And as we were talking, um, an Army officer, an MP, came up and said, you know, we couldn't do this, you know, that we were on government property, that we needed to leave. And uh, we said, well, we, 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 it's going to take us 15 minutes to talk to the press. And so that's what we're asking for. And he would 
said, no, you have to leave now. And we said, you know, no, we really want to make this statement. Mm -hmm. And uh, he kept you know, pushing us back and, uh, and finally said, you know, you have to leave. And, we, and one of the members of our, of our group finally said, so what, what are you going to do to us? Are you going to arrest us? And the MP said, oh, no, we're not, we're not, I can't do that. And he kind of sputtered. Um, and then he left, but then he came back again and, uh, again, was very angry as we were just finishing up and wouldn't let us finish uh, and, and just yelled at us. And finally, and as an Asian-American, it, it sort of stung. He said, you know, don't you understand? I'm speaking English. And, and this is a, a remark that um, you know, oftentimes you know, people of color hear over and over again, that we're somehow not American. You know, I'm a third-generation American. You know, my grandparents came here over 110 years ago. And it felt like a slap to me uh, for him to do that, that you know, we didn't have the right to be there to protest. Mm -hmm. And so that happened. We were there in solidarity with other communities, with uh, the, the Latinx community, with the, um, uh, the African-American community, uh, the, uh, the Jewish community, other communities of faith you know, to, to protest. And particularly the, the Native American community was there also. And so with that, it, it coalesced a, a, a protest about what was happening at Fort Sill. Um, several weeks later, there was even a larger protest um, and, uh, and during that um, exchange, um, in particular, we, we brought um, you know, uh, members of the faith there. And from the Japanese-American community, we had uh, 15 Buddhist ministers there. And they were doing a ceremony for all the um, you know, people who had, had died at Fort Sill mm -hmm. uh, while uh, being in prison, you know, Native Americans, Japanese-Americans, and others. And while that was going on, there was a, 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 an incident where um, Oklahoma is an open carry state. And um, there was a person who came you know, with a sidearm and a large knife, you know, walking towards uh, the Buddhist ministers as they were performing the ceremony. And before this person got to them, uh, there were members of uh, the uh, American Indian Movement, AIM, mm -hmm. you know, Native Americans, and they actually came up to this uh, gentleman and surrounded him you know, very peacefully. You know, they, they, they kept their arms, and they just wanted to stop him from progressing because they didn't know what he was going to do. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very tense moment, and it brought home to us um, sometimes the, the, the danger uh, that we face in, in protesting these things. Now, we've seen children that have been in these camps for a very long time. Uh, there have been some very early psychological studies, as I understand, that show the difference in terms of the damage done to children that have been separated from their families as opposed to those that have not. What do you expect we're going to see five or ten years down the road after children have had this uh, experience for a prolonged period of time and in very degrading situations? Marwa, I might ask you that question first. Well, when we um, uh, we actually last year launched a, a tour um, against ICE, and uh, that's when the abolish ICE hashtag came into fashion. And during that week that we launched the tour, um, we got the call uh, about the zero tolerance policy, mm -hmm. and that uh, women have been transferred to CTAC deten detention center, federal detention center. Um, and as we understood how again this regime has been using what it's already in existence. Mm -hmm. So these laws that they used to separate children have been in the books already. Mm -hmm. They hadn't been used a lot, but it's legal what right. they did. Um, 
it made us understand that, you know, the fight that we had back in the day before the privatization of detention was, we don't want to be separated from our children. And there's been so many children already separated from their parents through deportations. Um, but the escalation of these, um, you know, incarcerating children is just appalling. And so for us, um, actually my daughter was 13 and she went to Congress to deliver a, a book of stories that she and other children, mm -hmm. all children of U.S. citizens, uh, um, non-U.S. citizens, were given to uh, Congress saying, what are you doing to us? You know, we're children, we're not gonna have our parents, we can't sleep thinking mm -hmm. our parents might be gone. Why are you doing this to us? And so m my daughter, still till today, feels the effects of, she knew since she was five that I was undocumented mm -hmm. because I never knew at what point I could be gone. So we have till today a routine where if, if I don't answer within five minutes, she you know, puts the call out, where's my mom, right? So now imagine when you literally incarcerate children mm -hmm. and they have no idea what happened to their parents. I think some of the stories that we heard about the, the children were, I don't know where my parents are. I mean, it's horrible what's happening to me, but I rely on them. Where are the people that are supposed to take care of me? So the, the long-lasting impact that it has, like the story you mentioned of you know, somebody that's 80 years old and when they tell the story, they turn 11 again. And all these generations that are growing up not trusting government, mm -hmm. not trusting authority, and honestly, I'm fine with that. <laughs> I don't have any problem with that. But I feel the long-lasting harm of not feeling that somebody could take care of them. Terry, what's your feeling? So children are profoundly aware of their vulnerability and their parents are their world. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was about four years old, my dad was having a surgery. I was dropped off at some cousin's house. I didn't know them real well. I stood at the door for three hours waiting for my family to come back. Mm -hmm. I can remember to this day, left at my cousin's house, how that felt to be away from my family. I cannot imagine the, the, the sense of vulnerability that has been ingrained into these children's experience, the loss of trust, not only in the larger society, but in their parents, you know, and, and how they're going to, going to resolve that over, they're gonna carry those wounds the rest of their life. And that's what we're doing to our children. These are our children, these are human beings made in the image of God, and this is what we are doing to them. There's been the phrase pyramid of hate. I might open that up and ask you to unpack that a little bit for those that are watching or listening at this point and talk about how that's being manifested today. When I go into classrooms and, and get questions, and, and, and oftentimes students might ask a question like, how can genocide happen? Or you know, why, you know, what happens or why did we put um, this, you know, this community into a concentration camp? And, and that kind of leads to the steps uh, that happen before those things, you know, like genocide or concentration camps happen. And, and what I explain to them is it, it generally is a series of steps that, you know, as a historian, uh, you see patterns over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so for in the case of, you know, Japanese Americans, which I've studied a lot, it happened many decades before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. I mean, um, you know, first there was this sense of, of what we call otherizing, where um, you know, we, we paint a community as being somehow different mm -hmm. than the rest of us, 
oh, look, you know, they either, you know, the food they eat or their religion or the way they look, you know, they're, they're somehow different. And then they say, oh, the next step is, oh, they're dangerous too. There's mm -hmm. something that we have to um, be afraid of. And that really gets into our tribal instincts. I think when we see people who are different than, you know, almost it's primal that, oh, okay, so we have to be careful mm -hmm. and, and, and people can play upon that. Um, and then it just starts escalating that, well, now if they're different, they're dangerous, we have to treat them differently. So maybe we have some laws that prevent them from doing certain things. In the case of Japanese Americans, they say, well, let's not allow them to become citizens. If you're from Japan or China, let's, uh, let's have laws that say you can't become citizens. And then with that, oh, let's not let them buy property. And so all of a sudden you start getting these, these practices that are different, you know, they're all of a sudden. And then when you have a, a cataclysmic event like the bombing of Pearl Harbor, it's like, oh, you know, it, it, you know, all those fears are true. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're different, they're dangerous. Um, you know, we had these laws that were right. Now let's, let's put them in camps. We have to recognize that a process of dehumanization and escalation into certain kinds of violence is all about convincing people who want to do good, who see themselves as positive moral actors in the world, to see that violence against a group uh, whether it's by the government or whether it's by mobs of, of, of violent offenders, um, is necessary and even heroic. Mm -hmm. So most of the folk in Germany did not see themselves as, hey, we're doing bad stuff, isn't that great? They saw themselves as positive moral actors who were convinced that the Jewish folk uh, were, were a threat and that there was no other choice. And that if they did violence, that a positive future would happen for Germany. And so all of us have to sit back and look at the kind of language that we use about other people, the kind of language that we're consuming from our media and our politicians and ask a question. Is that language fundamentally dehumanizing, otherizing a group and starting us on a process? The detention centers and uh, are, are the result of, of decades long dehumanization of our Latinx sisters and brothers and, and they're not the first. And, and but it's getting worse. We are sanctioning violence on the basis of that dehumanization, and Americans need to recognize where we're at right now and what is happening. Well, thank you all very much. There is so much more that we could talk about this, and we will. I can see another program coming out of this, and I hope you'll all agree to come back and join us again. Thank you very much, and thank you for joining us on Challenge 2.0. We hope you'll join us again next weekend. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Cuccio. Ian Olson is the production assistant.